Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Convincing Coffee Break with me, Mandy Brown, and Richard Snape. Well, hello. Today, Richard, we're going to try something different. We ran a course very recently on how to respond to inquiries, and we had, during that session, a lot of questions that we couldn't answer. We didn't have time to answer. So what we're going to do in this session is take some of those questions, quite a few of them, actually, and put you on the spot and get you to answer them. Are you ready for the challenge? I'm ready for this. Perfect. Okay, question number one. Can you define on the head, heading of the replies to inquiries what not as far as the seller is aware means to limit liability? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is what we started off with. We did, a, we did actually two inquiries courses, one primarily residential and one commercial. But obviously, I mean, there's in cases, there's one case that we did a, a podcast on earlier in the year called Rossi and Pacifico which amongst several cases said that uh, not aware could be a representation you've taken all reasonable steps to find out. Uh, it's based on a 1990s case called uh, Sunderland Cambridgeshire County Council. But uh, you can potentially sort of limit your you know, liability. I mean, my personal preference has always been sort of uh, to say not aware, but no investigations have been made. That should be okay. I think that is probably the best bet. Excellent. Thanks, Richard. Right, moving on to question number two. So this was uh, a solicitor that asked, I normally add to the top of replies the wording, the seller offers no warranty as to the accuracy of the replies and the buyer must rely on their own survey, inspection and investigations. Would this be sufficient? CPSCs already contain similar wording. Yeah, there are similar words in, in quite a lot of sort of responses to inquiries. I mean, the problem is that quite complicated court of appeal case that caused a bit of a stir when I did it in the, I think it was in the commercial course, it was in the residential notes, but uh, didn't get around to, to, again, sort of talking about it. A case called First Tower Trustees and CDS Superstores, where they said, uh, the court of appeal said that a non-reliance clause was uh, an attempt to exclusion or limitation of liability, you know, that, um, you know, that I think they said something like uh, there the, was a lease, but the lease hasn't been entered into in reliance of any statement or representation made by or on behalf of the landlord. And that was an attempt to exclude liability, and it uh, falls foul of um, Section uh, 3 of the Misrepresentation Act. Uh, if you try to exclude or limit liability for misrepresentations generally in law, it's got to be reasonable. It was held not to be reasonable in those, that case. And then the court did say it would, you know, unusual circumstances would be held to be unreasonable. So a rather long answer from me, but there is a subtle difference between the, and the court recognised this, limiting what you've done and excluding liability. And if you limit what you've done, no investigations have been made. I think that's a better bet. That's not an exclusion, not so far as I can see, and that's not subject to a reasonableness test. So I think that's probably the best bet. Okay, perfect. Moving on, uh, we have a lot to get through. Next question. Is not known interpreted in the same way as not so far as the seller is aware? I, would, I mean, it's difficult because I've never heard of, you know, come across a case on not known. But for me, it seems very, very similar. Whether there's a difference between not known and don't know is the other possibility. Because a lot of the standard residential inquiries and commercial, for that matter, you know, give options like the Japanese not we question, yes, no, don't know. And certainly the guidance seems to suggest that don't know isn't a representation that there's been steps to find out. So if I was to opt for anything, I think it would be don't know rather than not aware or not known. But I wouldn't like to say, I'd say that Rossi and Pacifico case is a difficult one. Okay, thank you, Richard. 
So question four, what is the stance on building regulation for loft windows? Do we need fencer or building regs approval? Well, if it's a loft uh, conversion, you'll need the whole sort of building regs in place at the time if it's going to be a bedroom or a, a living room or a kitchen diner is the other stupid place where a kitchen diner is your loft but uh, i'm sure some people have thought about it the windows i mean they would need fence uh, again it's a sort of more of a surveyor's and structural engineer's job but they've got to be energy efficient windows and um you know, your loft has to have adequate ventilation and uh also the structural safety of uh, getting into the roof as well and if it's close to a neighboring property so it's fire safety as well issues so yeah i mean they should have they should have building regs. okay moving on so staying on building regs with documents for building regs and planning permissions, how many years back do we need to provide them for? I think you've got to take a view on that. I mean, the old protocol, the pre-2019 protocol, actually said that if we're both planning and building regs, if the seller commissioned the work, the seller should get the documents. And with that proviso, if the buyer wants documents going back more than 20 years, the buyer should get them. Uh, there's nothing like that in the in the new protocol, not so new protocol nowadays. I think things like fire safety and uh structural safety you know are more important than others i'd let people take a view on that one quite honestly 20 years is the absolute limit and there's also the proviso that particular part of the building regs was in place i think planning permission is more difficult because i mean planning permission breaches involving building work can be enforced currently for up to four years but it's from four years of becoming aware uh, of the breaches thanks to Mr. Fiddler and others who hid his castle behind straw. And if there's been deliberate concealment, there could be enforcement many years later. Quite frankly, in those circumstances, probably it's a policy is the best bet. Funny you should mention that. I was going to say indemnity insurance could be available. Don't forget well, the building yeah. breaches are now enforceable in England, not Wales, for 10 years. You heard it here first. Well, since October the 1st. But, yeah. <laughs> So, moving on, is there an obligation to disclose a dispute you're aware of between the two neighbours opposite, but not between the property owner? For example, an antisocial behaviour dispute. Well, that's not what the um, standard inquiries say. I can't imagine. I can only think I could possibly imagine if you've got a question about that. But if I've got a specific question uh, from the other side and the buyers about that, I think I'd uh, refer to the protocol if they signed up to the CQS. That was short and sweet. So, question seven. So, an inquiry as to the condition of the property, is it subjective and therefore not permitted? Yeah, I mean, things like that should be... If, you, if I get questions about the condition of the premises, I think my answer to that is rely on your inspection or survey, and if I get pushed on the matter, I sort of quote the protocol. You're not supposed to ask those questions. It's not legally law. And so that's, again, another nice, short, sweet one. I don't think it's a lawyer's job. Perfect. Question eight. What might happen if the buyer asks the seller about neighbour disputes and the seller verbally answers no, but it transpires there is, was a dispute? Well, you can uh, get sued for misrepresentation, and quite potentially quite kind of substantial sums of money. In the uh, the residential course I did, the, um, there was a case which I, I can't remember if I got around to talking about called Doe and Skeg, where they you know, responded to the question about neighbour disputes. There aren't any neighbour disputes when they'd uh, written letters and the likes about the conduct of the son of the owners of the next door property who would leave cigarette butts in the front driveway and 
deliberately put the, you know, get the security lights to be put on in the middle of the night when they got sued. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it would be an action or misrepresentation, obviously subject to being able to prove it if it's verbal. It would be fraudulent. Okay, thank you, Richard. So question nine. So a solicitor asked, I've had a number of buyers who have been told things about the property that were not true later on. One was that they could have pets in a lease. Could the client sue under CPR? I, I presume that's the consumer protection regulations and the amendment regulations of 2014, which basically say that uh, if in the course of a business you make a misrepresentation or admit to do something, that which to a significant degree causes a consumer to enter into a transaction, it's a criminal offence, it would also be actionable. It's got to be made in the course of a business against the consumer. So if it was just a member of the public, you know, the seller who said these things, the consumer protection regs wouldn't apply. Subject to proving it again, it might just be a misrepresentation. But, uh, I mean, if it's no pets in the lease, I mean, the buyer should have found that out anyway. Thank you. Right, question 10. The freeholder solicitors refused to provide landlord certificate because the freehold is being enfranchised. How can we force them to provide? Well, it's the Building Safety Act that has created landlord certificates that should be uh, provided in various circumstances, but amongst others, in four weeks of the landlord becoming aware of the uh, leasehold they're intending to sell. Like I think was mentioned, you know, the, the, the sanction is if you don't provide them in time, then uh, you can't charge for safety work, be a service charge. If it's an enfranchised building, then, well, basically, in those circumstances, it's not a relevant building anyway. It would have to be an enfranchised building on February the 14th, 2022. But, you know, if it's going to get enfranchised, you'd be basically claiming against yourselves. There was a case, uh, it's only a first-tier tribunal case, uh, a case called um, Will in Caterba and G&O Properties. That's another one we did a podcast on not so long ago, which basically said the tribunal has got no jurisdiction to require a landlord to provide a certificate, which is a problem because you might have difficulties selling or mortgaging the property without a landlord certificate if it's a relevant building. Okay, thank you, Richard. Right, so here's a question that we actually had a lot of questions about. And I'll, rate, I'll uh, answer, ask the two questions together and perhaps you can then answer them. So what inquiries should we be raising in relation to spray insulation on both open and closed cell? And the second question, which is related, is do you have any advice on spray insulation as this doesn't appear to be considered in valuation surveys? First of all, what is spray insulation? Well, it's insulating material that you spray on things, basically. I don't know the technicalities of it, and I've never used it myself. The problem at the moment is that it's it's not regulated. I mean, my understanding is that certain types of, could be breaching uh, fire safety problems in relation to building regs because they're highly inflammable. Um, but um, there's no regulation. It's obviously topical at the moment because people want insulated buildings and again my understanding but you'll have to talk to experts is it can cause condensation in your building but like cavity wall insulation um, in the past and i have come across mortgagees i think the value is our starting to draw attention i haven't come across mortgagees who are you know will be unhappy with it and potentially well exceptional circumstances you know withdraw the mortgage offer but i'm not sure it's a lawyer's job okay next question We've recently received a third edition TA6. Is it reasonable to request the seller's solicitors to provide a fourth edition? Well, the fourth edition 
version one of it came in in February 2020. So I think, yes, it is very reasonable. There's been quite a few changes, not least of which in England, septic tank questions, if it isn't on the main sewers, are totally different. But also one or two others, the guidance on relation to Japanese knotweed has has changed dramatically as well. So yeah, I think it's, it's reasonable. Excellent. That was a short question. Would you raise an inquiry if the seller has said no to Japanese knotweed? As a buyer, no, I wouldn't. I mean, if there is Japanese knotweed, it's actionable. I mean, the guidance, which I just mentioned in relation to the TA6 fourth editions, which not everybody gets to see, says that, and the same would apply, I'm sure, to the commercial property standard inquiries, says that um, you shouldn't be taking no as a response to that unless you're absolutely certain, because it would be actionable otherwise. It doesn't have to be fraudulent, you know, it just could be, you know, well, it's, a, it's a representation that's incorrect. So I think you should advise people not to take no unless they're experts. Okay, thanks, Richard. I wouldn't pursue it. Down to the last two. So, are fire risk assessments now required on coach houses? It's a tricky one because the Fire Safety Act of 2021, which came into force in Wales in October of 2021 and May of last year in England, <laughs> says that um, whenever you've got at least two sets of dwellings, which doesn't make too much sense how many dwellings that actually means does it mean two or four you should have a fire safety risk assessment covering the whole of the structure and exterior the external doors and windows any internal doors that open the, the common parts and any attachments such as balconies and solar panels the original fire safety order of 2005 says you've got to have a risk assessment not for the dwelling itself but for the any external or internal common parts. So it's always been assumed if there's no common parts, then you don't need a risk assessment. Coach houses don't tend to have common parts. But if it's within the same building, then I I don't think it was intended, but I think uh, legislation probably inadvertently applies. But if you try and ask for a risk assessment, the other side's going to tell you what to do. So you can argue the case out. We need some clarification on it. Okay, and finally, and it's a related question, is a fire safety risk assessment required for a Tyneside flat? I think it's the same. Um, for those who don't know, Tyneside flats, there's two different types, north and south Tyneside flats, and I'll bore you with the, the different difference in leases. But basically, you get them all over the, prop, uh, the country, not just in the northeast, but they're properties where you've got separate entranceways and no common parts, not even a common porchway. And I think the answer is exactly the same as for the previous question. You know, if you take it at face value, there's an argument under the Fire Safety Act changes that they might be needed, but I don't think it was intended. I'd ask for one, but I'm not sure I'd get anywhere getting one. So there we are. Thank you, Richard. Well, we've reached the end of the questions. Thank you for, for answering them. I hope our listeners found them useful. And uh, until next time. Well, thank you. listening to another episode of Convincing Coffee Break, the only podcast for busy convincing professionals, brought to you by Lawshaw Insurance Brokers, an award-winning UK provider of title insurance. For more information on our free conferences, go to www.lawshawinsurance.co.uk where you can download recent conference recordings. <laughs>